This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is November the 18th. And as you must know by now, we love data at Best Friends. We love data as much as Oprah loves bread. Maybe not as much as I love bread, but listen, we love data a lot. And data is so vital to the work because it's hard to know how best to solve something if you don't know what the problem is. And you don't know if what you're doing to solve it is working unless you're tracking the efficacy of your efforts. That's why we have folks at Best Friends, staff, and a very committed cadre of volunteers who are focused on collecting data from every community in the country and then analyzing that data to help inform not just the work of Best Friends, but all of our work. Today, we have Brent Tolner back with us. Brent is the Senior Director of Lifesaving Programs at Best Friends. We're going to be looking at some recent findings in year-over-year data in terms of intake and outcomes. We know things are challenging. We know intake is up. We keep hearing things about adoptions, not enough adopters, but how much, where, with who, what is the data showing us? Now, listen, I really want to hear from you on this. I want to know what's happening in your community with your organization. Is your intake up? Is it down? Is it about the same? How about your outcomes? Are you seeing fewer adoptions? What about the number of adopters walking in the door? Maybe you have the same number of people coming in, but you're making different decisions than you were three or four years ago. Email is podcast at bestfriends.org. What are you doing right now to combat the challenges? If you're finding things that work, email us, podcast at bestfriends.org. We'd love to share your story potentially in an upcoming episode. Good ideas need to be shared, right? And then finally, the Best Friends National Adoption Weekend event, December 9th through the 11th. It's free to participate. Your organization can receive a stipend for every dog or cat adoption you do during the three days. Check out the link in the show notes on your podcast player. Brent, so glad to have you back on the podcast, man. It's been a while, but you're here, which means there's got to be data to discuss. Yeah, we you know, are always looking at data, but I just kind of did a deeper dive on some of the stuff that we've been talking about or seeing as an industry as a whole and, and trying to uncover like where some of these challenges are that we're seeing across the industry. And you know, intake's going up, not tremendously, not extravagantly, but we're seeing it start to gravitate toward the more normal 2019 type levels. I think we all expected that, but I think we've been struggling because the adoptions at shelters aren't keeping pace with the increase that's going up. And I think with wrapping our arms around that challenge was something that we're all struggling with and all working toward. And so we just kind of did a deeper dive and analysis on on some of the things that are happening there. I should point out that this is a discussion about data and numbers, which can be ridiculously tedious for an audio podcast. So we will do our best not to make it like that. And we did just publish an editorial that you wrote that lays out all of these numbers on the Best Friends Network Partners website. We've got a link in the show notes, so check out the show notes on your podcast player. You will find a link to that on our website. But yeah, so listen, I don't think you have to be a paid staff member of a shelter or rescue to realize the struggle that's out there right now. You know, social media, tons and tons of posts, organizations out to the public saying, we're full, we're struggling, we're at capacity. Please come, adopt, foster. So, you know, I think the question has been, just how much is this the case? You know, are these anecdotal stories all adding up to be really the big picture or, you know, what is that picture? So you're saying that the data that you've looked at is indeed showing that to be the case. 
the, the data does back that up. We're, we're definitely seeing it in the data. And yeah, you're right. Like I get Google alerts every day and it's like, there are three or four stories from around the country every day of shelters that are just full impact the gills. And it's been a, an ongoing struggle for everyone, but it's not being felt necessarily exactly the same way across like all different types of shelters uh, in the industry. And we'll get into those differences, but I, I just want to ask that when we're looking at these trends, Brent, these numbers, true to say that we're looking at everything across the country cumulatively, meaning this might not be the exact scenario where you live. You know, what we're saying is happening in municipal shelters may or may not line up with your municipal shelter. And then uh, tell me, where's this data from? How many shelters and rescues are included in this analysis? So this is data from 639 brick-and-mortar shelters. So the rescue data is excluded from this analysis. But it's 639 brick-and-mortar shelters that Best Friends has monthly data that we're capturing throughout the year. And we get that from a variety of sources, public sources, through some of our, our SAC coalition data, people who submit it directly to us. And so it's that group of shelters that we're really looking at. And it is aggregated across the entire country. So, yeah, to your point, like it may be a little different in in various communities. It may not be fully representative of what's going on in in every situation, but it's the best that we can do right now of of trying to track in and identifying trends across the country. Understood. So the data is broken out into three organization types, municipal shelters, private shelters with a contract. So that's say a humane society that has a contract with a municipal government or many of them to provide sheltering services. And then also private organizations without a contract. So again, maybe a humane society, they accept animals from the public, but they do not have a contractual obligation to do so. Correct. Yes. And then you've got dog and cat in terms of the species breakdown. Correct. Okay. So let's start with the intake part, the number of animals entering. And intake is up. As you said, it's up the most at municipal shelters. So for all combined, all of the shelters you looked at in this analysis combined, intake is up 4.9%. Municipal shelters up 7.2%. Private with contracts, 3%. Private without contracts, 1.8%. So up for everybody, but markedly so for municipal shelters. But then I think the plot thickens somewhat when you look at dog versus cat, because the dog intake at municipal shelters is way, way up 13%. Yeah. So when we talk about species, and it's interesting because like we'll spend a lot of time talking on this podcast about dogs because organizationally Best Friends is really focused a lot on cats because we know that two cats are dying for every one dog in the shelter. But really the interesting trends right now uh, have been in dogs because cats have been relatively stable. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of fluctuation higher or lower based on that. What we are seeing a lot is a big fluctuation in dogs. And so what's happened with dog intake is, you know, you, you mentioned the municipal shelters were up 7.2% overall, but they're up 13%, 13.2% for dogs. And so that's pretty dramatic increase for the municipal shelters to take on. But that's different for the private shelters that don't have contracts. So they're only up about 2.8% for dogs. When the private with the contracts have tended to be right in the middle between there. So they're at 7.5% increase for dogs. And so what we're seeing is that that influx and intake is really happening pretty dramatically on the municipal side. I don't think that's terribly surprising. Like they always feel these changes first because they're the ones that have probably the least control over 
how they're able to manage intake. They've got the field officers that are going out. A lot of them are now getting more fully staffed and field officers. So they're just able to pick up more animals, respond to more calls and that sort of thing, which I think there are benefits to all of that. But obviously the, those benefits aren't on the, the shelter staff who end up you know, having to care for all those animals uh, that end up coming in from those calls. Well, there's a lot there. And I just want to caution myself on not going crazy, trying to pick it apart and draw a ton of conclusions because this is incredibly helpful, but in in many ways it is still quite surface level, right? We don't get the context uh, of what is happening specifically, but you mentioned intake policies, you know, municipal shelters obligated often to take everything that comes in. And unfortunately, you know, many are unable to implement any kind of intake strategy that would help them kind of manage that flow. Uh, now, many have been able to do that. And of course, on the other end of that spectrum, a private organization without a contract, they've got no obligation to take more animals. But interesting to see that even without that obligation, the intake for that segment still up almost 2%. How much of that difference, Brent, do you think can we put down to just different organizations with different roles? And so that's something we see ordinarily. And, you know, this kind of diversion in numbers tracks with uh, a normal deviation in terms of intake. Um, you know, I think to a degree that is just the difference between the two of them. But I also think that, you know, if we're all working together as an overall industry to try to end the killing of dogs and cats and shelters, then, you know, I think what happens on the private side should closely reflect what happens on the muni side as they're looking to, you know, help take on more of that burden from their municipal shelter that's often across town, uh, maybe in a neighboring community, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I think it's on us to always look at what's happening with across the industry to help solve the industry problem and not just our own, what's happening within our own four walls or our own necessarily our own community. Well, over the last few years, you know, particularly I think during COVID, we saw that acceleration was that shift across the country towards community supported sheltering. So, you know, really engaging the public in a deeper way, like, Hey, thanks member of the public. Thanks for finding that stray dog. Instead of bringing him into us today, can you hold on to him for a little bit? We'll work together to get him back home. We've got some tools that can help you. You know, you mentioned field services, so animal control officers reuniting lost pets in the field, for example. So thinking about that and knowing that a lot of communities have been implementing those types of strategies to reduce intake, but still seeing these dramatic numbers, gosh, you know, it really made me wonder how much worse everything might be right now had intake prevention not become as much of a focus as it has been. Yeah, obviously the, the communities with those programs are they're a huge benefit for them. Now, I think there are several factors in it. Obviously, not everybody's implementing all of those programs, and the more communities that can, the better. You know, especially the, the returned owner the, in field, uh, the Good Samaritans hanging onto those animals to uh, try to reunite them in their community versus them going across town into the shelter, that sort of thing. There's also, I think, some have been some challenges in the implementation of some of those because as we've seen across every aspect of our country, staffing is an issue. You know, if you go to a hotel or you go to a restaurant, like everybody's understaffed. And, you know, that's true with our, our shelter staffs as well. And some of these programs do take some staff to be able to have the time to do it. And so they're not all being implemented equally across the board. Uh, but yeah, it could be a lot worse if we hadn't done some of these programs and more 
places weren't being more proactive about uh, reuniting animals in their own community. Okay, so we've talked about intake, noses in, as we say sometimes. What about noses out, positive outcomes, adoption, transfers to other organizations? Uh, you know, intake fluctuates, right? Always has, always will, somewhat predictably based on factors like time of year. But we have been able to, I think, as an industry, balance those times with adoption specials, transfers. You know, we're putting out pleas for foster homes. Have we been able to maintain our outcomes with that increased intake. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, the national discussion has been around that, you know, that adoptions are up, not up nearly at the, the degree that intake is. And that that's really caused kind of a bottleneck at the shelter level because shelters are doing everything they can to not have to uh, euthanize animals for space in, the, in their shelters. But it's causing the shelters to be full. It's causing the crowding. It's causing the staff to be really stressed at some of those shelters because they've, they've just gotten fuller over the course of the past year. At Best Friends, we've done three national adoption events this year that have been tremendously successful. Uh, we have a fourth coming up in December. Because we saw that trend in the adoptions, and we're seeing that when we do these adoption events, that people are coming out to adopt. So it was, became puzzling, like, why are we not moving more animals through the system? And I think particularly, again, this comes back to dogs even more specifically than cats, because cats have been pretty okay for the better part of the year. But dog adoptions have definitely been sluggish on the national level. If I had to pick one number of all of them, that we're going to talk about today that really stuck out to me, it would be the increase in adoptions at municipal shelters. Cat adoptions, pretty static. Dog adoptions, up 17%. 17. I mean, I don't know what the actual number would be, but I mean, that kind of increase in adoptions, Brent, I mean, it must represent tens, hundreds of thousands of more dogs being adopted over that period. It's an incredible jump uh, on the municipal side. And, you know, again, I think they've had to adjust tremendously because they're seeing the influx. They're seeing the 13% increase in dogs coming in. So there's a lot of pressure for them to find the positive outcomes for them. And so they're doing everything they can to bring people into the shelter, being sure that they have good customer service experience when people come into the shelters to adopt, you know, the best they can. I know that they're short staffed. And so they're trying to do what they can to be able to do that. Uh, removing barriers it's interesting. I've talked to several shelter directors who just during the pandemic weren't spending as much time day to day at their shelters. They were able to work remotely. They thought it was good for everybody, you know, just to have fewer people on site. And they recognized when they started coming back full time to their shelters that a lot of the adoption barriers that they had broken down over the previous like five or six years had kind of crept their way back in over time and they hadn't really noticed. And so they were really looking at like, okay, how do we continue to remove those adoption barriers to be able to move the volume of animals we need to out of our shelters? And so, you know, we're seeing that on the municipal side that they're doing that with that 17% increase in adoptions for dogs. I've also been thinking about pet acquisition, you know, the number of people, households that will get a new pet. With COVID, it was just that weird period, right? We had all the foster homes step up at the start of COVID, and then we shifted into this bizarro, like, workforce situation, the great resignation, whatever it was called. And then, of course, we're in this terrible economic time, which common sense tells me that many people might just be holding off on a bigger decision like getting a new pet. But that being said... Uh, I understand very anecdotal, but the local pet store here, they just opened another location. So somebody's doing okay. Somebody's getting pets. So is this a question, do you think, of people putting off those decisions? So there really are just fewer people in the market right now, or are they still getting pets, just not through a shelter or rescue? 
Um, I don't know that that's like I don't know that we have enough information to really know. It does seem, by all accounts, that people are still acquiring pets. You know, I think as a an animal welfare movement, we've never really made up more than thirty to thirty five percent of the total number of pets that are acquired. You know, we've still always had pet stores, uh, which make up actually a smaller percent than you would think that they do, direct breeder to consumer acquisition. And then also, you know, the number one spot has always been, you know, from a friend or family member. So, you know, I think we can get ourselves caught up in some of those things that have always been factors out there that the majority of people have always acquired a pet from somewhere other than shelters. And, you know, I think in some ways, I feel like the puppies aren't products type of mantra that has been out there for a long time has hurt us at times because we don't think of this as being necessarily a business in the way of what we're really doing is competing for market share. We're competing for the market share of that acquisition. And if we can get in the 30 to 35% range or get it up to the 40% range, that's when we're going to be successful of like moving more animals into homes. Brent, remind me, what was the total number of healthier treatable pets that died in shelters last year? Total nationwide. So that number was was about 365,000. So that's a lot. It's a lot. But in comparison to where we were 10 years ago, even five, I mean, what an incredibly dramatic decrease. And I start to think about how much the industry has grown with the changes, or in this case, decreased with the progress, right? You know, if you've worked so hard to get your intake down and you've been able to save all these resources, you know, are you staffed at a level of sort of like pre-COVID level, 2019 level, and then all of these things hit? Do you know what I mean? So it's like, are some communities just being hit really flat-footed, uh, you know, with, with those internal resources at a level that's the 365,000 number instead of the scale uh, it is now, which is, you know, I don't know, probably more like 2017 or something. Well, and I think that's one of the things maybe that, that that's potentially happening. And, and and we don't know, and it's going to vary a little bit from community to community and shelter to shelter. But when we started diving into that, so we talked a little bit about the municipal shelters and them increasing their adoptions 8.6% and their dog adoption 17%. The privates without contracts are actually down uh, in adoption. So they're down 1.3% total. They're down 1.9% in dogs. And so like, that's a really stark contrast when the private shelters without contracts are down in adoptions, but the municipal shelters are up. Uh, the privates with, with contracts are, again, kind of splitting the difference there. They're up 1.6% total, 1.8% for dogs. I think one of the things that's sort of the municipals are feel that pressure because the animals are coming into them every day because that intake's happening. And so they're having to make quick adjustments because they have to, uh, because the, the alternative for them is often if they don't do the adoptions themselves, they're, they're going to have to make euthanasia decisions and their spouses don't want to do that. When you control that intake, you don't feel it the same way. You know, I wonder if some of the privates have been a little slower because of the short staffing of some of those things to staff back up and really get operations back to where they were in 2017, 2018, 2019, uh, before the pandemic. And what that's caused is because those privates are often the recipient of pets via transport or transfer from some of the municipal organizations is really shut off that transport spigot. So in spite of the 17% increase in adoptions for the municipal shelters, because they're down 18% in transfers, they're not feeling any of the relief or the pressure from that. 
um, because they've lost that other secondary outlet of the transfer markets because they're not able to move as many animals. And so I think we just need to figure out how to, as a global movement, get everything back up to the, the capacity that we were you know, three years ago, pre-pandemic. Well, I'd love to hear from our partners on this. And I'll, I'll make sure that I put the request in the intro to the episode because, you know, while I think it, it obviously would just be individual organizational experiences, anecdotal, it's still interesting to know, I think. You know, pre-COVID, did you have, say, 100 people a month walk through the door looking to adopt? And these days, we're only getting 50 people a month. Or is it still 100 people a month, but fewer are actually making the final decision to bring the pet home? Or is it still a hundred people a month? But you know, organizations, particularly those with uh, without a contract, are they intentionally slowing things down? Maybe because of future uncertainty, being more cautious in the adoption process. You know, I know I keep saying these things, Brent. They don't have data to back it up. Uh, when this episode is all about data, but I hope folks will shoot us an email here: podcast at bestfriends.org. Let us know what's happening with you podcast at bestfriends.org. Because for me, this acquisition question is a big one, I think. When groups are saying, hey, we don't have adopters, what is the decrease in adopters? You know, do we really have a sense of, of that? Or are there as many or nearly as many, but maybe we're not making the same decisions we would have in 2019 because of the uncertainty? And then that's making us feel like there just aren't as many adopters, like not intentional, but just sort of subconscious. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think that's been the real challenge for us is trying to identify like where that that hiccup is, because, you know, is it happening on to your point on the adopter side where there just are fewer coming in the door? And, and that could be, you know, there's a lot of economic uncertainty. Inflation's been at record highs. Like there could be a little bit of a softness in the number of people who are seeking out to adopt pets right now, but how much of it is on the operational side and things that we can control. So, you know, I know one of our local shelters, uh, one of the local shelters to me has cut down their adoption hours because they haven't had the staffing. So they're now open fewer hours during the week. That's going to have an impact on it. You know, maybe some shelters are closing a day or two a week because of, of staffing concerns. That's going to have an impact on the number of people who are coming through the door when people come in, are they leaving without a pet because we don't have the staff to work with them? And so they just become overwhelmed by the situation. They're not getting a lot of help and support in the adoption process. We're not delivering the customer service experience and therefore they're leaving without a pet. Is there something about like the way pets are showing in our shelters now? So now that shelters are back at high capacity, are there stress levels and arousal levels that we haven't addressed because we haven't revamped some of our in-kennel enrichment programs and that sort of thing that we were doing with volunteers pre-pandemic, but the volunteers aren't really there for us? You know, so I think that there are some things that we can control, and I think the better that uh, we can be and individual shelters can be at identifying, is it the lack of people coming in or is there something about what we've done to limit the adopter experience. Like, you know, there's some shelters, John, that you and I've seen it. We see it a lot of places that went to appointment only adoptions during the pandemic. And just like, we loved it. We're going to stay there uh, and just continue to do adoptions by appointments only. But is that limiting the number of people that are coming through the door because you're adding an extra step that I can't just impromptu stop by the shelter when I got off work an hour early or I just had to be driving by the shelter and like, oh, I'd like to stop in there, but oh, I don't have an appointment. So I think there are a lot of those operational things that we need to look at that might be barriers to this process. Offsite adoption events really took a hit during COVID and we know how important they can be. You know, getting pets out of the shelter 
into a retail space, a mall, and events, you know, going to where the people are. I mean, to badly uh, misuse a classic movie line, if you build it, they will not come to the animal shelter on the outskirts of town. But bigger than that, I think about the super adoption events we've done at Best Friends for 20-odd years now. Huge two-, three-, four-day events in a park or a PetSmart parking lot. You know, real fun festival atmosphere type events. Are people doing them anymore? Have they started back up? And I'm sure someone is saying, yeah, John, okay, cool. One adoption event isn't going to solve it 100%. Even two, three, four, 500 adoptions in a weekend, that isn't going to solve it. But what I've seen in my career, you know, in Salt Lake City, for example, where we did these events for so long, it really raised the awareness of the issue. It raised the awareness of pet adoption in a way that only a super adoption can. I mean, days of media, the visibility you get from an event uh, of that scale, and then add in the unquestionable, I mean, maybe unquantifiable effect, uh, at least I don't know that we can quantify it right now, but uh, the, the effect that the moratorium on veterinary services like Span Neuter have had. I mean, so many places in the country during COVID put a uh, moratorium on those services, saving PPE. And in some places, it was months and months without surgeries. I mean, places are still getting caught up. So it's all got to be impacting this. It's never so simple as to be one silver bullet, right? Like, I mean, there are a lot of those different factors that are impacting it. I'm with you on the super adoptions. Like, you know, used to love those events, not only for the festival atmosphere of it, it was also a lot of animals would find homes during those types of events. But then even for people who weren't in the adoption market at the time, there was such great awareness because there was so much buzz and publicity around them uh, that people became aware of the, the challenges at shelters. And I think, you know, one of the things that happened a lot during the pandemic is shelters were intake dropped so much early on in the pandemic where there were all the great news stories of like people flooding the shelters to adopt or to foster and the shelters were a quarter full or half full. And like that gets cemented in people's minds a lot of, well, wow. Okay. Well, the shelter's no longer, you know, quite the struggle uh, that it used to be. So maybe I'll look at a different place for acquisition as opposed to going to the shelter. And I think these events really elevate the discussion of the need to help shelter pets. And we know that the number one reason why people choose to adopt over any other type of acquisition is because they want to help save a life. They want to be a part of the solution for their community and help an animal in need. And so like, we need to let our communities know that there's a need out there again, uh, because uh, animals are at risk across the country because we're not moving them quick enough. Yeah, great reminder that the language you use today can greatly impact tomorrow. And listen, not that you asked, uh, but my present for this holiday season, uh, I would really like for everyone doing this work to realize that these are community problems. I know we're breaking this data down into buckets based on organizational type, but ultimately what's happening at your local shelter is within the community and the local rescues in that same community still the same community, the decisions that one organization makes today impacts, you guessed it, the community. So I don't want this to come off like, you know, John Dunn is saying one group is doing more or less than another. And it's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is what I say a lot on the podcast, to be honest, is that we have to collaborate. So yeah, if you want to get me a present, Brent, uh, you just missed my birthday. But if you want to get me something, it's that we can help folks to see these things in the larger sense not just simply what's happening at your individual organization. Um, I totally agree with that. And I also like, you know, when I think about what people can do and what, what it, or individual organizations can do is 
we all know that there's a crisis out there. Like we, we've been talking about it. Gosh, we've been talking about it for over a year now because we've been seeing the writing on the wall and it just doesn't seem to be getting a lot better in a lot of cases. And I think it's really up to all of us to look at our own organizations and look at it critically, you know, and that not, not to beat ourselves up. Like, because we do enough of that, like we're really good as an industry of beating it up on ourselves and on each other, but to take a critical look of like, are there things that I can be doing to remove these barriers? Like, do I need to extend my hours into the evening a little bit more for adopters so that they have a presence? Do when I close down on Mondays and Tuesdays because the, I didn't have the staffing, is it time to get back to being open on Mondays and Tuesdays again or on a Sunday when people are off work? Do I need to remove some of those barriers when people get to our shelter or improve the adoption experience when people are here? Do I need to open the doors again so people can come in and not have to do adoptions by appointment only. Like, I think we need to take a critical look at all of our operations of things that may have changed uh, over the last three or four years and say, like, what do I need to get back to doing that will make ourselves more open and available to the public, continue to create a better adoption experience for people who come in and ultimately save more animals' lives when they go home with families. And, you know, I think that's, that's tough for us to do sometimes because, it's easy for us to focus on the barriers that are put in place for us. And let's face it, there are a lot of barriers. Like, I mean, the economy is a barrier. There, the lack of staffing is a barrier. The fact that we can't retain staff is a barrier. Like, all those things are real things. But it's easy for us to put those in as a way or a reason why we can't still address some of the challenges that we have. And I think we have a lot more control over things than we give ourselves credit for as an animal welfare industry. And, boy, it's a lot more empowering to focus on the things that you can change uh, and that you do have the power to change than all of these other factors that you don't have the ability to change. Like you and I aren't going to sit here and fix the economy, but there are things that we can do within our, within sheltering organizations that we're a part of to help improve that. Well, you've been doing this a while, Brent, and I have as well. I mean, not that, more like this type stuff, but you know what I mean. Uh, but we've talked about us. I mean, you know, we're sort of going back in time a little bit as a movement, right? And that has me thinking lately about how we adapted back then. Like, how did we take what felt like insurmountable odds in 2005, 2010, and fight that, you know? And uh, listen, for people that don't know, in your pre-best friend's life, you, your wife, Michelle, a group of folks made the decision to bid on the contract for the shelter operations in Kansas City, and you won, and you were able to take Kansas City no-kill within a year, right? Yes. Yeah, within six months, really. Well, I've heard you talk about that time and how you had to be really creative, you know, doing more with less, taking an office for someone, you know, one of the leadership and turning it into a Parval ward. This isn't to suggest that our incredibly smart, creative movement is no longer smart and creative. The opposite. I think we need to find a way to tap into that more than we ever did and figure out how to come up with new solutions because I know we can. I totally agree. And I think the other thing that is a, I think a really important takeaway for all of this, because it's really easy to go into this thing of like, here are all of our challenges and here's the negative of all of this. But I think probably more important than anything is and what gives me hope for all of it, because, you know, it's a challenging time. I don't want to diminish the, the challenges that everybody's going through. But if this exact scenario had taken place 10 years ago as an industry, the increase in shelter deaths would have been in shelter euthanasia and space-based euthanasia decisions would have been astronomical. But it's not because like as an industry, we have more people who've come in that are more committed than ever 
to saving lives. And so like we're seeing some of these capacity issues and some of the stress because like people are working their butts off to save animals' lives. And like that's a mentality that's changed in this industry. That there's just there's more dedication for uh, that life-saving component than we've ever seen before. And I think we're seeing some of that take place. And that gives me hope because it's like when you have that dedication to finding every solution possible outside of euthanasia as being the option for those pets, like that's where that innovation comes in. And that's where you start like, Hey, what am I going to do for these two parvo dogs that come in today? And that, you know, that's when our director of operations, like threw all of the stuff out of our office and into a hallway and said, okay, I'm going to office in the hallway and this is our new parvo award. Like that's, the type of in ingenuity that comes when you're like looking for every solution possible that doesn't happen when you have the fallback on of, of euthanasia as a, as a solution for that. You know, we've obviously added a lot of new people to the industry over the last three years because it's a fairly high volume uh, turnover industry. Uh, some people who have never really experienced this type of volume intake before. And so I think those of us who have been around for a little while uh, need to just reinforce some of that creativity and, and draw the best out of like and empowering our staffs to come up with those innovative solutions for things, because that's what's going to save us. Well, Brent, listen, you, everyone at Best Friends, the folks who work across the country with our network partners, supporting local communities, you're all doing great work in very difficult times. And that goes for all the lifesavers out there. Best Friends is here to support you. It's a huge part of what we do. So if you're out there and you're struggling, shoot us an email, please. Podcast at bestfriends.org. We will do everything we can to get you the help you need as best we can. Take advantage of what we have at Best Friends. The Adoption Weekend event coming up that you mentioned earlier, that's free money in the form of a stipend to cover every adoption you do during the event. We've got this amazing mentor program we now call the Shelter Collaborative. I, I just want people to know that you and your team and many, many others here at Best Friends are here to support and help you during this incredibly challenging time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all hard work out there. Like if it was easy, everybody would be at no kill by now and, and would have done it years ago. Uh, we know it's a lot of hard work and it's, I know sometimes people can take things of like, um, as, as in a critical nature. And it's not that like, we're just here to help uh, and try to bring whatever expertise or connections or whatever um, to the table to help that. So yeah, absolutely. Well, finally, as you're looking at these trends, I'm hoping you can tell me some good news, Brent. As you look at these trend lines for 2022, are things heading in the right direction? Would you say? You know, I think we saw a trend that started probably in about July of last year, where things started getting really tough for shelters, maybe about June or July of last year. And that had continued to kind of take place throughout, you know, most of the summer this summer. Uh, I think now the trend line looks a little less wonky because now we're chasing what was a hard time last year versus a hard time this year versus a hard time last year versus an easier time the year before. But I don't know that it's letting up anytime soon. Like it, it, it seems like it's the trend is still there, that things are, are definitely a challenge for people. Well, I was definitely hoping for a different answer there, if I'm being honest, but I know you'll stay on it. And hopefully the next time you're back on, uh, the news will be a little rosier. Sounds good. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.